The views, opinions, and findings contained in this podcast are those of the host and subject matter experts. They should not be construed as official Department of Defense positions, policies, or decisions unless designated by other official documentation. Hi, welcome to Clinical Updates in Brain Injury Science Today, or CUBIST, a podcast for healthcare providers about current research on traumatic brain injury, also known as TBI. This program is produced by the TBI Center of Excellence, or TBI-COE. I'm your host, Don Marion. Today, I'll be speaking with Ms. Amanda Ganot, a physician assistant and TBI subject matter expert at TBI-COE. Amanda and I will discuss a study entitled Clinical Utility of Near-Infrared Device in Detecting Traumatic Intracranial Hemorrhage, a Pilot Study Toward Application as an Emergent Diagnostic Modality in a Low-Resource Setting, an article written by Robert Kramer and colleagues and published in the Journal of Neurotrauma in August of 2022. In addition, we are excited to welcome a special guest on this episode, Lieutenant Colonel Bradley Dangler. Dr. Dangler is a neurosurgeon, the neurosurgery consultant to the Army Surgeon General, and an assistant professor of surgery at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. So, Amanda, thanks for bringing this article to our attention. What was the study all about? Hi, Don and Lieutenant Colonel Dangler. Thanks so much for agreeing to speak with us on this podcast. So this study looked at the sensitivity and specificity of a near-infrared device. This was the InfraScanner 2000 compared to a non-contrast CT in detecting and localizing intracranial bleeds. So this study is of particular interest to the military community because oftentimes service members are, you know, they're deployed and injured in places where a CT scanner is not readily available. And additionally, there are some other concerns that are specific to the military population in that medical evacuation for CT scan can be logistically challenging and sometimes dangerous. So near-infrared devices like this one detect hematomas by emitting a near-infrared light into the intracranial space via a fiber-optic probe that's pressed on the cranium. So a sensing probe then receives that reflected light and the absorption profile is then measured. So hemoglobin absorbs more light in the near-infrared spectrum. So a higher absorption profile would then indicate that there is a potential bleed. Thanks, Amanda, for describing that. I know it's kind of a detailed technology. Before we dive into the article, though, Lieutenant Colonel Dangler, could you tell us a little bit about your experience using InfraScanner 1000 when you were deployed? Thank you all for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and discuss this. So back in 2018, I want to say it was my first deployment to Iraq. And this had gotten the attention of some high-ranking people in the Army Surgeon General's office. And they asked USAMDA to push it out for a field assessment quite rapidly. So we actually received the devices. I think it was the older version of the InfraScanner, if I'm not right, not the 2000. When I was in Baghdad, they asked us to kind of do an assessment. So at that point, it wasn't super busy per se with a lot of head injuries. So I kind of used it on whoever we could, anyone that remotely maybe hit their head or had any kind of issue, we kind of use it on. So my experience with that version was that it kind of required you to go back and forth. So it compares the absorbance between sides. So it asks you to do, you know, left frontal, right frontal, and then it tells you based on how things respond, if there's evidence of blood, but it has to compare one side to the other. And then it takes you from frontal to temporal to parietal and occipital and kind of gives you all the locations there may be blood and then lights up with a little red dot on the screen if it detects a difference 
and the light coming back to the sensors. So the biggest issue we had was if they had any kind of hair, it was hard to get the hair out of the way. And then if they had dirt or something else, it was hard to also get it to scan. It would make you go back and forth a fair amount of times. If they were completely bald, then it was pretty easy. Um, so that was, uh, but not a lot of people shaved their head that well. So our initial experience was that it was kind of hard to get the readings back and forth between those. And I know the medics were getting kind of frustrated with it too, because it kept telling you go back and check again and go back and check again. It was rare that we just run right through the first time. I think it's a, certainly a good stepping stone to get to more advanced technologies that might be easier to use. The fact that we can have that device that can do that right now is pretty awesome. But I think there's still some improvements that can be made to make it more battlefield deployable and usable. Thank you, Colonel Dengler. I think it's very important to have people with real live hands-on experience in theater such as you've had to put this all in perspective. So Amanda, how was the study done? So this study was a single institution, double-blinded, prospective observational study of the NEARS device, InfraScanner 2000, compared to CT in diagnosing and tracking traumatic intracranial hematoma formation in a consecutive sample of 500 TBI patients. So patients who presented to this institution with a suspected head trauma that required a non-contrast CT scan between December 2017 and March 2018 were considered for the study. Within 30 minutes following each CT scan, the study team scanned the patient's head with the InfraScanner 2000. Each scan took about five minutes, and the examiner was blinded to CT result. The study team also collected data on several other variables, including age, blood volume, hematoma depth, skin color, hair color, hair length and thickness, scalp laceration and hematomas, skull fracture, mechanism of injury, and there were a few other variables they collected as well. Radiologists who interpreted the CT scans were also blinded to the NEARS results. The study team then conducted a statistical analysis on these variables and controlled for confounders. So what were the results, Amanda? It's an interesting profile of study. Yeah. So among the 500 patients evaluated by CT, 104 were hematoma positive, 396 were hematoma negative. The hematoma positive group was older, had lower GCS scores, higher rate of loss of consciousness, a higher rate of skull fractures, and greater mortality, which is not surprising. There were no demographic factors that were associated with the InfraScanner 2000 results. And I think this also included those factors like hair length and thickness that they collected. Among the 104 hematoma positive patients by CT, 85 had only one type of hematoma, 5 had epidural hematomas, 48 had subdurals, 7 had subarachnoids, 25 had intracerebral hematomas. 14 had two types of hematomas, and five had three types of hematomas. Of all the scans completed, regardless of bleed type or size, they found a sensitivity of 85.6% and a specificity of 95.7% for detecting intracranial bleeds. The sensitivity was 98.8% with a false negative rate of just 0.3% for subdural hematomas, and that was in 65 patients, and 100% and 0% respectively for epidural hematomas, and that was just seven patients. The device performed the worst in evaluating subarachnoid hemorrhage, and that was in 19 patients with a sensitivity of 57.9% and a false negative rate of 2.1%. And for intracerebral hematoma, there were 29 patients and the sensitivity was 82.8% with a false negative value of 1.3%. 
So when they limited the detection definition as a hematoma depth of less than 2.5 centimeters and a volume of greater than 3.5 cc's, which is what the device manufacturers use, the sensitivity was 94.2% and the specificity was 95.7%. One other thing that was interesting of the 32 patients that underwent neurosurgical intervention, only two were hematoma negative by NIRS. One of them was positive for CT for a chronic subdural hematoma and underwent a burr hole. And the other one was negative by CT, but had an extraventricular drain, presumably for an elevated intracranial pressure, but this patient subsequently did not make it passed away. All 42 patients who had midline shift and all 34 patients who had ventricular effacement were positive for hematoma by the NEARS device. These sound like very good results, Amanda. You know, in in particular, I know that the joint trauma system has produced CPG for non-neurosurgeons doing craniotomies or craniectomies in austere environments. And it appears that this is a device that has a real possibility for helping to localize where the clot is. And along those lines, Colonel Dangler, I was hoping that you could maybe comment a little bit on comparison of this biomarker, if you will, with the serum biomarkers that I know you've been involved with and have authored a CPG on. Briefly, what do you think are the pluses and minuses of each? Yeah, thanks. So we have fielded the iStatalinity to CENCOM currently for an operational assessment. And the iStatalinity is FDA approved to essentially rule out the need for a CT scan after trauma. So we wrote kind of a detailed clinical practice guideline figuring out who's at highest risk for an intracranial hemorrhage. So if the biomarker comes back as not elevated, then they have a very high negative predicted value. The problem with it right now is it can only be done in a roll two because it requires a centrifusion lab to do it. So it's not really that far forward. But what is good about it is from further on studies, we know that if the higher those numbers, the GFAP and the UCHL1 go, the more likely they are to have more intracranial damage or hemorrhages. So I think there's going to be likely some you know, forward progress where we have some system in which we can look at as far as like a rule one, maybe point of injury rule one, we have an infrascanner and they just say, you know, hey, this person's positive for blood, but we don't know how much or how many. And then maybe they evacuate those people first to the rule two, and then they get the blood-based biomarker. And if the GFAP is super high and they have a positive infrascan, maybe those people then are at higher risk of needing some kind of cranial surgery and then should be evacuated sooner versus a positive infrascan with a barely elevated GFAP or UCHL1, we might say, well, they're kind of a lower risk of having significant hemorrhage and we can wait. So some pattern like that in which we combine all these different modalities to get us the best picture of what's going on in the head without a CT scan. That's a very interesting perspective and it makes a lot of sense. Um, So Amanda, what were the limitations of this study? That's a good question, Don. One thing that I did find surprising about this study was that they indicated that the presence of subgallial hematomas or scalp lacerations did not significantly correlate with the likelihood of a false positive result. And this was likely due to a single examiner administering the InfraScan every time. And so this is a huge limitation. That examiner was likely very meticulous in cleaning the scalp of any frank blood that could skew the NEARS results. They were likely very careful to avoid some of those hematomas that could also skew those results. 
And of course, this is not feasible if we're talking about a combat or deployed setting, or even in a low middle income country, this study is looking to repeat these results in. And the examiners do acknowledge this. And so they are talking about repeating this study in Uganda. So this is a country in which there is low CT scan access and high number of TBI. And a lot of these TBIs are secondary to unhelmeted motorcycle accidents. So I'll be very interested to see how they address some of these confounders like subgaleohematomas, scalp lacerations in a setting where the mechanism of injury is a little bit different. So I just want to emphasize a point that you made in terms of limitation, which was something that Colonel Dengler had mentioned to me as well, which is that they had one examiner doing all of the examinations in the study, and that's not realistic. That's not the real world. And you'd have someone like Colonel Dengler, who's done this a few times, but this isn't his usual occupation doing these kinds of scans. So I think that is a shortcoming, and we need to see in the future how things go with improving the technology, I guess, and making it more available to people who aren't experts in doing the studies. Yeah, Don, they even mentioned that their examiner was on call 24 hours a day for the entire duration of the study. That's just a crazy amount of time for someone to be constantly called in to administer this test, and it's just not feasible in the real world. So, Colonel Tangler, any final thoughts about this study, or did you want to mention anything about the study you're doing with Dr. Brody? Yeah. So like I said, I think this is a great stepping stone as far as, you know, first in the gate type of device that proves we can do this and we can detect blood without a CT scanner, but there's still some improvements to be made. So I've always been saying that as far as evacuation priorities, the biggest thing that we need to know is not just if there's blood present or not, because when we're trying to do fielding and con ops and stuff, usually what I say is if we have eight people who are GCS seven, some of them may just have a bunch of diffuse axonal injury or concussed or gotten sedation. A couple of them might have a one millimeter subdural or some subarachnoid. What we really need to know is, yeah, that there's blood there, but then how big the blood is. And if there's midline shift or some of the important things in decision making to evacuate people. So I'm working with Dr. Dave Brody on a study where we're doing a sheep model along with the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. We look at subdural hemorrhage and detecting, but they're ideally going to be able to give us the size and shape of the hemorrhage using the same type of near-infrared sensors, but essentially more of them, and then modulating some different things in different ways to kind of give us an overall picture. So we're working on that to kind of improve upon the InfraScanner in and of itself to get us a better picture of what the hemorrhage actually looks like. That sounds exciting. I look forward to the results of that. So thanks again, Colonel Dangler, for uh, your insight and joining us. That's all we have time for today. You can stay up to date on future episodes by subscribing to Cubist on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, where you can also find links to the articles we discuss and other relevant resources. Cubist is produced and edited by Vinnie White and was hosted today by me, Don Marion. It is a product of the Traumatic Brain Injury Center of Excellence, a branch of the Research Portfolio Management Division under the Research and Engineering Directorate of the Defense Health Agency, led by Branch Chief Captain Scott Coda, Medical Corps, United States Navy. Thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs>